Welcome to the First Church Podcast, a resource of First Church of God in Columbia City, Indiana. Our goal is to provide you with tools that you can use to help you in your new or growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Hi, I'm Brad Miller, and I get to serve this church family as missions and discipleship pastor. Welcome to today's podcast. We've stepped into the historical books this week with Joshua. One of the passages that has always intrigued me is from chapter 5, where Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army. Moses has died, they cross the Jordan River into the edge of the Promised Land, and Joshua meets this guy before they're ready to take over Jericho. Verse 13, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now this story takes place, it's the beginning of the part in the Old Testament where God is moving his people into a specific geographic location, their promised land, the land of Canaan. Up to this point in the movement of the people of Israel, there's been a little bit of fighting, but now this is where the Old Testament warring really kicks in. There's a lot of battles, a lot of bloodshed, and this can be a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around with our loving God. Abraham, their forefather, and some of his descendants lived on this land before, but they ended up in captivity in Egypt for 400 years. Moses led them out of that captivity, and they wandered in the wilderness for another 40 years. So they're returning to their ancestral homeland, but it's a place that they've never personally lived, and other people live there now. So the Israelites, these descendants of Abraham, are instructed to remove the current residents of Canaan, but they're instructed to wipe them out. In Deuteronomy 20, it says, "...in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving to you for an inheritance..." You shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. Wow. And so the bloodshed of the Old Testament begins in earnest. It raises all kinds of questions, but primarily it kind of boils down to what kind of God is this that would command destruction like this? Uh, It's it's reemphasized earlier in Deuteronomy when Moses is still with them. And he says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, you shall utterly destroy them. What kind of God does this? Well, as we answer that question, I think there's several factors that will help to look at it. Now, please let me uh, me say up front, some of these answers aren't going to be emotionally satisfying, or they may not be. They, they may feel like they fall short of the mark, but hear me out, and let's put them all together and see where we end up. So the first thing to consider is that this is a God who gave the Israelites rules for war. If you read the rest of Deuteronomy 20, there are a number of requirements, of regulations that they have to meet for, for how they conduct warfare. One of, some of the, them relate to within the nation— uh, so if a man had certain family or business obligations, or, or even if he was just afraid, he didn't have to go to war. Uh, there were also some, some requirements towards their enemies. 
when they went to war against a city, they were required to offer terms of peace. Let them live as servants if they wanted to take the terms of peace. If the city didn't accept the terms of peace, then the Israelites were to go to battle, but they were to treat women and children civilly. And there were even, it's fascinating, there are even some environmental restrictions about what they couldn't, could and couldn't do with trees and cutting things down. So it may not sound like much to us. This is still a God sending the Israelites to war. But when you contrast it with the other nations of the day and the way those nations conducted warfare, this was different. This was unique for there to be some requirements like this. So, so keep in mind that God gave them instructions about how to conduct war, not just to go to war and kill a bunch of people. We also have the factor that God is a God who judges evil. In Leviticus 18, Moses tells us about all of the evil that the Canaanites were doing, these people in the land. He's telling the Israelites that the Canaanites are doing these things, and you're not to do them, Israelites. All kinds of instructions about sexuality, avoiding adultery, incest, bestiality. Then he specifically says, and just as an example, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Now, Molech was a Canaanite underworld deity who represented, uh, who was represented as an upright, bull-headed idol with a human body, and it was large. It was a, it was a very large idol, in whose belly was a, had a fire stoked, and then it had outstretched arms. While the fire is in the belly, a child would be placed on the outstretched arms and burned to death. Uh, one account says that as the flame was burning the child. As that flame surrounded the body, the limbs would shrivel up and the mouth would appear to grin as if laughing until it shrunk enough to fall out. The infant would fall out. But it wasn't even just infants. Children as old as four years old were sacrificed to Molech. Uh, awful, awful. So that I, I share that just to help you understand this is the, the depravity to which the Canaanites have sunk. He continues in Leviticus 18, he says, Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by all these the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean, and the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. And Moses had just reminded them of this again in Deuteronomy 12. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed by you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? That I also may do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. God was concerned about sin, about his own holiness, and he was concerned that his people not forsake what's best. Now, there are some who would say that God was using hyperbole when he was talking about destroying the Canaanites completely, drive them out, destroy them, uh, but then there's also commands about don't intermarry with the Canaanites, don't do business deals with them. How can you do business deals with them if, if they're driven out and destroyed? So it's, it's possible that that it's hyperbolic, but he's still commanding them to war, and he's still commanding them to destruction. And we see other places where he takes that very seriously. So we need to remember that God is a just God who will judge sin, and his overarching purpose in this world is to have a people 
that he can call his own and to dwell among them. God is holy, and so at some point he is going to judge sin. He is going to bring judgment on sin. You know, I find it really interesting that one of the most common objections to God and his existence at all is the problem of evil. If God exists, why is there so much evil in the world? If God is good, he should do something about this. If, if God was actually great and powerful, he would do something about all the sin and injustice and evil in the world. So often the question is asked, why doesn't God do something? Yet it's just interesting to me that as, as human beings, it's precisely when we see him do something about evil, we actually tend to object to it. We, we recoil at the, the thought of destroying the Canaanites for their sin. We don't like it, but then if we see sin now, we, we want it to be judged. And also, let's not forget that God has the authority to do this job. For example, the owner of a business can do things that employees may not be allowed to do. Uh, I, I couldn't lock someone up in my home, or I couldn't lock someone up in a building anywhere, uh, but the government has the authority and actually the responsibility to lock criminals up, uh, proven criminals. That's what they're supposed to do. The, so in this case, the creator has freedoms that the creatures of the creator don't share. God has the authority to do this, but beyond just the authority, he has the wisdom. He has all knowledge of all things, and he has the character to do this well. Remember God's first explanation of his own character to Moses in Exodus 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God has the character and the wisdom and the knowledge to be a perfect judge. Now, it's also worth noting that God had been incredibly patient with the inhabitants of Canaan. And in fact, for generation after generation, potentially for up to 400 years, dating back to the time of Abraham. But God's patience, he came to a conclusion. And God also showed mercy to those who did repent, those who repented of their ways. God showed favor to them, and Joshua spared them, uh, specifically mentioning Rahab the prostitute. Uh, she became a part of the lineage of Christ, so God is a God who will judge sin, but he is also very merciful. So remember, not only did they have restrictions on war, and not only is God a just God who will do something about sin, and rightly so, God will even judge his own people. You know, Israel was sometimes a participant in God's plan to bring justice to other nations. Sometimes they were a spectator as God did it without them. Other times they were actually an opponent of God. When Israel would return to evil, God would use different means, but he would bring judgment on his people. God brought famine, drought, conquest, and exile. The whole community suffered, not just men, but men, women, and children. God used the Assyrians against the northern kingdom of Israel, Babylonians against the southern kingdom of Judah, all brutal, and that was the whole nation. But even when individuals sinned like the Canaanites, they were supposed to be cut off from their people. I think this may be part of that significance of the commander of the army of the Lord. When Joshua saw him right before they're ready to go into the first battle, 
saying that he's not for the Israelites or the Canaanites. He's not for or against them. God isn't on anyone's side when it comes to matters like this, but rather he has his own purposes, purposes of love and grace and mercy and truth and justice. God is all of those things. So when we think of telling of God telling the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites, we can't leave out that it was because of their sin. We can't leave out that he was and is fair and just. We see this carried through to today as well. In Romans 3, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, a payment by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, in his divine patience, just like with the Canaanites, God had passed over former sins. He had been merciful. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus came because God is just, and the only way to take care of our sin problem is for there to be justice. Justice doesn't come cheaply. In dying for our sins, Jesus made a way for God to be just because justice was done. Our sins were paid for. My sins were paid for, and yet God is also the justifier because my sin is paid for, because our sin is paid for. He clears us of guilt. He clears us of punishment because Jesus bore that for us. So actually, when I reflect on the instructions for the Israelites to go to war, it's a reminder of how costly sin is and how just our God is. It reminds me exactly how much I need Jesus' death to cover my sin. Thanks for listening today. God bless.